0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American Story. Written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic.
1: Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. And as always, across from me, virtually at least, is our president and co-founder of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, how are you?
2: What's going on? I I always feel like I should add uh, you know, you can follow me at Jamar Tisby. Tyler Burns gets all the all the all the love on Twitter, but it's it's probably much more interesting to follow his timeline than mine.
1: Nonsense. But see, here's the thing. When you give me the mic, I might as well just get a couple of followers out of this. You know what I'm saying? Hey, I am mad at you.
2: I am mad at you. Yeah, but Listen, I just got I, back from uh um Richmond, Virginia, and I did a talk. Yes, that's
1: what I wanted to talk
2: about. Woo, buddy, buddy, buddy. Um the talk was entitled Understanding the Heart Cry of Black Lives Matter. And, uh, you know, I talk about racial topics all the time, but this was like a whole other level of tension and sensitivity. Um, Once you say Black Lives Matter, man, people—it's polarizing. People run to their corners, and um, there's not much in the middle. So I was not trying to persuade anybody to support or to repudiate it, and I did distinguish Black Lives Matter as a principle, which I think Christians can affirm in terms of the image of God— but I also talked about Black Lives Matter, the organization, went through some of the things in right. the platform. Uh, but it was really good, man. People were gracious, and I thought it was a good start, and we'll see how it goes.
1: Yeah, it was an excellent talk. If you guys haven't had, we need to post that talk. I don't know if we have already, but it was excellent. It's probably the best treatment of Black Lives Matter from a historical, theological, social perspective that I've ever heard. So.
2: Well, Um, big,
1: big props to you, Jamar. That was very insightful. Well,
2: I'm excited we have somebody who's much more knowledgeable about the world in general on with us today. (laughs) Have we
1: ever had a Harvard grad on on the show? Wow.
2: I don't think think so. Welcome. Uh,
0: This is uh, my first time, I think, being on a show with a doctoral student at Ole Miss. <laughs> uh Oh, yeah. yeah, no, like See, I'm, I'm
1: just gonna let you guys trade trade uh, academic credentials.
0: I'm just gonna watch
1: <laughs> and sip tea.
2: Come on, preacher. Come no, on, preacher. it's.
0: <laughs> for the season, I was uh, I was looking at that last week, and obviously, you know, anybody who knows the history of race and Ole Miss knows that's nothing to sneeze your head at. To shake your head at or sneeze
2: at. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, we've come a long way in terms of race relations, but we still got a long way to go. And it's one of those things where like people look at me sort of side eye when I say I'm going to the University of Mississippi and I'm black and I'm studying race and religion. I'm like, well, you know what? There's really no better place to study these things because it's been on the radar for so long and there's a lot of good work going on there. Yeah. So, so Tyler, introduce our guest.
1: Yes. We have CNN reporter um, and social media savant, (laughs) Eugene Scott. Eugene, thank you so much for joining us. We've been wanting to get Eugene on the podcast for a while, and uh, it's just been encouraging to see you um, just on social media and then on our television screens as well as a CNN political reporter.
0: I am uh, very, very glad to be here. Very um, impressed and thankful for. The work you all do, uh, like speaking about the uh, intersection between uh, race and faith and politics. I mean, all of these issues are at the forefront of everything we're talking about today and reading about. And um, what you're doing is very much needed.
2: Well, you know, we appreciate it. We talk. One of our earliest podcasts was about the double edged sword of social media. But but here's one of the, I think, really great benefits is, I mean, We sort of interacted online first, and that's kind of how we got in touch. Tyler, you may have had a longer, um, interaction with Eugene than I did, but it, it was just really cool. I saw your posts on Facebook and Twitter and I'm like, this guy is, is hitting all of the issues that I think are most interesting and most important. So I just started yes. following you and I'm so thankful you were gracious enough to respond back a few times when I, when I tweeted at you or, or messaged you. So thank you.
0: Yeah, no, man. Social media has been a been a gift. I mean, it, it is obviously very difficult. I'm sure all of us have gotten more attention from trolls than we uh, care to have <laughs> uh, gotten attention from. But, you know, quite, quite frankly, I don't um, I don't really respond well to those who say uh, I hate social media or social media is all bad. Mm-hmm. The, the fact of the matter is that social media has connected people from from like-minded worlds who would have never run into each other in real life. Um, And social media has also highlighted issues and brought them to national attention that um, that the mainstream media just would not have uh, before the invention of social media. So I'm I'm as grateful as you all are. Yes.
1: Yes. That's a great point about social media and the reality that there is um, a lot to glean from it and a lot to redeem, um, even in the midst of that medium, even in the midst of occasional confusion. Now, let me ask you this, Eugene. You are part of the quote-unquote mainstream media. Yes.
2: You're a political correspondent on top of that. So, I mean, one of the questions both Tyler and I have always been interested in is, you know, what's been your experience and, and how do you feel about being really one of the only black political correspondents on CNN?
0: Yes, it's, it's, been, it's been really uh, interesting. I think um, a lot of people probably think, The mainstream media is more diverse than it actually is. I think there certainly are different organizations working really hard to increase media diversity, but uh, the the diversity at most places does not reflect anything close to um, the national population. I think that definitely affects how stories are told, what stories are told and, and what's left off the table as well. I think for me personally, um, it's a it's a complicated situation. I mean, I when I pitch stories that are related to black communities, I all I always do so with an anxiety that uh, my higher ups are assuming that I'm advocating for an issue or a position. Mm. Um, And uh, no one has ever said that, thankfully. Uh, But that's always like the fear that. They think that you are backing something that um, you aren't. You're just saying that this issue matters to a significant segment of our population and our readers. I'll I'll tell you this without trying to go down a a long tangent. I remember when I was a high school student um, pursuing journalism, my my first journalism job is I was a correspondent on a show on BET News called Teen Summit. Mm-hmm. Um, which in the late nineties and early two thousands, the focus of it was to uh promote issues related to black American youth. Yeah. Um, and I had mentors back then, I grew up in Washington, DC, who were uh uh reporters at uh, like the Washington Post and like minded organizations. And uh I was told do not let them make you the black reporter. Oh yeah. And the thought was, if you only write about race, they'll think you can't write about anything else. Um, And if they are never put in a position to write about race, they won't. And they'll think that's always your responsibility. (laughs) Um, And so I actually ended up spending a significant percentage of my career, uh, I've I've been a reporter in the Midwest and the South and abroad, and um, trying to avoid racial topics Mm. because I wanted so badly to prove that. I could be proficient writing about business and government and education. Wow. And um, and then you realize in the last couple of years, race is a major issue affecting all of those areas. Yep. And and the absence of people in the mainstream media with the absence of people who have the ability to speak intelligently and factually and with a historical perspective mm. on these issues affects how they're covered. Yes. And so I think I'm at an organization now um, actually that appreciates my my knowledge and my high value of diversity and um I'm 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 very grateful for that
2: Wow <laughs> that sounds so familiar um, <laughs> just being in the sort of theological branch of Christianity that that Tyler and I are in is predominantly uh, uh, Anglo predominantly white and uh, we, we're fighting those same battles so we have uh, people of color who are like listen I can talk about more than just you know race and the gospel we can talk about soteriology we can talk about eschatology we can talk about, you know, family, all of these different things. And I feel that tension, but I'm I'm, I'm like you, you know, there's, there are very few voices out there who have been, who have either, either experienced life as a minority and has that per- firsthand ex- perspective, or who have studied it in depth enough to be able to, able to offer informed perspectives on it. So we're sort of, you know, almost forced into that position to where if we don't speak either, no one is speaking about these topics that are really pertinent to people of color or the folks who are, aren't necessarily the ones you want to listen to. So I think we can relate there. <laughs> what about you, Tyler?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's, a, he's, he's properly articulating kind of this difficult place, this tough place that we're in, kind of wanting to talk about these topics and talking about these things that matter, but at the same time, not wanting to be pigeonholed wanting to contribute more to the conversation more to whether it's the newsroom or the church. Now, let me ask you this, Eugene, you're part of the mainstream media. So what would surprise people? What are some behind the scenes things that would surprise people about your experience there? As far as how stories, um, break, Uh, give us a little bit of a scoop as far as to the behind the scenes, what would shock people and challenge their misconceptions, or presuppositions about the mainstream
0: media. I, I think one of the um, biggest surprises I found about the mainstream media um, that I think would further surprise uh, people um, who aren't in the industry is that there is a there's a significant caricature painted of um, people in the media uh, regarding their ignorance of quote real America, um, which is which is a problematic term in and of itself, as if like. Kansas is more American than Brooklyn. Um, mm-hmm. But um, this whole, there's, there's this belief that like everyone at CNN was born and raised in DC and New York and went to school in Boston and have only worked at publications on the coast. The, the reality is, you know, every day I sit between people who grew up born and raised and went to school in nebraska and missouri and florida and the carolinas and so there's so much talk about those people they don't know um what my world looks like the reality is they do they, they they are from your world they they lived and played and worked in those spaces um and their parents and brothers still live there and they're back there for holidays and so um there's just this character that people are ignorant um in, in this in this specific part of our, our society about people's lives outside of that society. But my experience personally has been that mainstream media elites, um, whatever you want to call them, my experience has been that they are more knowledgeable about the daily realities of people's lives in real America than people in real America are about our lives. Mm. Wow, that's interesting. So
1: how has it been as far as you being a believer and you being someone who intersects with you know, news and intersects with maybe sometimes a lot of hopelessness or intersect with um, despair on a personal level, how have you managed being a believer in the midst of that? And has that created any conflicts or any extreme difficulties for you? Because I think maybe another assumption is that there aren't believers in places where you are.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, I, I am a Christian. Um, I uh, don't lead with that in my professional space because I don't lead with anything there. I'm a journalist first there, but I don't think anyone expects me to dial that down or to be, um, uh, to hide that. I mean, my, my workspace is incredibly diverse. There are Jewish people, there are Christians, there are people who aren't of particular faiths. They're Muslims. Um, But I think uh, what would surprise many people um, is that the mainstream media is not as absent um, of people of faith as they assume. Mm -hmm. I find myself a lot of times believing that people have very, a very narrow, limited view of what Christianity is. And so... So Christianity is more diverse of a faith than I think a lot of people wish it was. And so how that manifests a lot of times in my experience working with a lot of evangelicals is people will say, if you are not a Christian, like I'm a Christian, then you are not a Christian. (laughs) Um, And uh, and that is why I think sometimes people and the mainstream media's faith get like dismissed because the thought is. That you're not a real Christian. But the fact is uh, different people view uh, their faith and the way it shapes them personally and how it should shape uh, the culture differently. I don't feel the sense of, um, I don't know, persecution or being uh, ostracized that I think many people um, would assume. Um, but that, has, that just has more to do with it in a professional work environment like the mainstream media, this just isn't something you lead with. Mm. If anything, and I, I talked about this, I was profiled in uh, David Kinnaman's book, You Lost Me, mm. I find far more rejection as a member of the mainstream media within evangelicalism uh. than I do as an evangelical within the mainstream media
2: talk more about wow. that. Why do you that, think that is? And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. what are the, what are they telling you? How do they show they don't want you in their space?
0: I think there's just <laughs> the the stereotypes people have, they, you know, they think people are, um, they think you work in New York as a journalist apart from Fox news. And you're just like this godless person.
2: You got New York um, values, and, as they say.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. All mm. of that. And I mean, it's so odd because they don't seem to you know, questioning their own elders um, for these same uh, these same concerns and issues when they uh, display worldviews that seem to be inconsistent with orthodox views of Christianity. But yeah, there's just this whole thought that, like, if you if you see if you work in those spaces, that there's no way that you can be a person who values uh, scripture or faith or worldview shaped by them. There's just a lot of assuming. Um, but that just has, I mean, I think that's to the point that the points we made earlier, there just, there's quite a few, quite a few assumptions are made about people, um, in spaces that we, where we don't do life, you know, it's kind of like how you all probably hear, um, you know, before the whole like urban church planning wave, people would talk about, um like cities as if like they were these places that just were absent of people of faith mm. um, to the reference point you just made. Yeah. So when mm. I left like Phoenix to go to Boston, there was a guy, a uh, older, very conservative leader at our church who was like, you know, I can't remember verbatim what he said, but he said, I mean, he, he was pretty much saying, I hope, I hope you're able to find a church in Boston, you know, it's Boston. And um, it it's it's liberal and it's left and all these things. And, and I told him as respectfully as possible, I said, Boston has churches that are literally older than the entire state of Arizona. <laughs> like I think I think I'll be okay. Yeah. Like this idea that there aren't people in New York, in DC, in Boston who uh look to the teachings and principles of Christ to shape their worldview just isn't one based on fact. And I think one of the things that becomes really difficult. And this just goes beyond, um, everything we're talking about now is that it seems that people like facts don't change a lot of things when you present facts for people, Mm. like if they've made up their mind that something is true, it really doesn't Mm. matter. Like, so I think, I know, I know I'm rambling, but if there, if there are people who have made up in their minds that like black men do not value higher education, um, like we they could we can we can show them this podcast and that we record it under the presidency of Barack Obama. And like they would still believe that, you know what I right. mean, despite the facts. And so that becomes a bit difficult.
2: Yeah, we've got an ideology that's not fueled by facts very much anymore. No, it's 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 much more no. passionate. I mean. You've been in this long enough to notice some some changes and some shifts in the landscape culturally. And I'm curious, it's sort of a broad question, but it, within evangelical circles, however you define that, there's this sense that almost, in, in my view, this is just Jamar talking, it's almost like the sky is falling. We're losing Christian America. Uh, everything's going down in frames, flames. We need to find a way to, you know, quote-unquote, make America great again. Um, I mean, how have you seen, specifically in terms of the culture of Christianity uh, nationally, or at least in in the areas you report, how have you seen the landscape shift in your time as a correspondent?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think it's so interesting that you even asked that question. I think, um, I think maybe the biggest shift, and I don't know if this just has to do with the people I uh, interact with, I mean, like race within very conservative uh, circles of Christianity It's more um, it's a much more common conversation, mm. um, which is not to say that um, people who are asking for uh, higher views on racial diversity are like winning or dominating. It's just more common. I mean, now, than I would say uh, five to 10 years ago, I, I didn't, some of the conversations that are being had right now, I just didn't see happening with uh, major, evangelical leaders a decade ago. And I think incre- there's there's an increased awareness that, to my point earlier about the diversity of Christianity, that Christianity is bigger than uh, the bubbles in which many people uh, live. So last night in Philly, I was having dinner with a friend um, who I went to church with in Phoenix, and he was saying he was reading something about, you know, the the epidemic of like millennials leaving the church or the dying white church, he's seen some data that said that he didn't realize because he moves in predominantly white evangelical spaces. That is a, that is a issue that is overwhelmingly like a white evangelical issue. Yes. Yes, Right. So like I was telling him, like, not only like are not, Most of my black friends that I grew up with, not only have they not left the church, they're all in like at least lay leadership, if not pastors, you know, whereas like all of your friends from like young life are nowhere to be found. Um, And I think there's just an awareness now that we're like, wow, the faith is bigger than my faith.
2: Go ahead, Tyler, because I could go all day. This is so interesting.
1: (laughs) No, I think that's really helpful. And I think one of the things that that creates that divide or creates that distance is social media because it's not all bad as we were mentioning earlier, but there, there are certain voices and there's certain ways that you can tailor your timelines to reflect only your small circle. Right. And one of the blessings is watching you and others navigate that space and deal with those misconceptions on a daily basis. So what are some social media best practices that you found that have been helpful for you, not just as someone who's a believer and a black man, but also as a a journalist and you have a public face, and you have now people are are starting to recognize who you are. How have you navigated social media dealing with trolls and also dealing with the misconceptions of evangelical brothers and sisters in Christ?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm still learning. I mean, I was talking about this yesterday. I I would argue that it, it maybe maybe a week or two ago, maybe within the last two weeks, it finally set in that I really should not speak to trolls. Um, that, that's, <laughs> not, that's not helpful. Like nothing good comes from it. And I think part of it is um, like not everyone leads with their with their trollism. You know what I mean? Like you don't always know you're talking to a troll. Sometimes until like five tweets in, and. Um, and you're like, oh wow! I thought you were engaged. You were interested in like helpful conversation, but you you were just a difficult person. Um, and so I'm I'm learning uh, to be more intentional in which conversations I engage. I try to be more discerning in terms of the impact that what I'm saying could have. I think those who don't have a lot of experience communicating in 140 characters or less, like you're going to get tripped up because it's so much stuff can be so easily misinterpreted i i I try to be more thoughtful um and beforehand trying to figure out whether or not what i'm saying can be misinterpreted i think another something else that's helpful for me you know my my mom reads my tweets you know what i'm saying (laughs) like my mom reads my tweets my like high school teacher my 11th grade teacher and like my my pastor my bosses my like there i have I have so many VPs that are paying attention to what I'm saying. And um, that that shapes how I interact. That shapes how I engage, because I, I think there's some personal and professional integrity that I'm concerned about that will make me doing life as an individual and a professional difficult mm-hmm. if I if I don't, if I'm not concerned about them.
2: Yeah. Mom reading tweets is, uh, I think, a good filter. <laughs> for no, man, all it now.
0: is. <laughs> it so is like I'm like I'm I'm kind of amazed at like some of the stuff people post, I guess, because I don't know, I'm just as, as someone to your point in the public eye, like I I know that like if I say something slightly left, it'll get screenshotted and like, uh-huh. you know, and and I guess I'm I, I guess I feel like many people. I'm surprised at the number of people who don't think that way. And I guess different people have different jobs. But like, like Saturday, I wrote a story uh, like a state uh, representative from West Virginia uh, tweeted that Hillary Clinton should be hung. Oh, I saw that. uh, And I was like, uh, like, did you did you not think anybody was going to see this? I mean, it's like if 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 he were like a a regular citizen, that would have been seen. The fact that he's a political officer—I mean, I—I think I'm just more surprised at the number of people. Who think people aren't paying attention? There are lots of lurkers out there.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear you say you know you're 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 not paying attention to trolls because I always have this debate and I wrestle online, uh, especially talking about issues of race and religion. There's always strong opinions about it, and uh, you know there're always going to be people who really you know they don't want to engage. They just want their to make their point and try to prove you wrong. So. I tend, I mean, more and more, I tend not to interact and engage, but I'm always like in the back of my mind, you know, am I, am I just creating an echo chamber, echo chamber for myself by not listening to dissenting opinions? But, you know, the way I sort of maneuver that is making sure, A, I'm reading broadly so that I'm not just getting information from the same sources and the same perspectives, and B, that I have actually real life Interaction and connections with people who have different perspectives. So, I mean, I hope that I'm not just putting myself in a bubble. But y- you're right; it's it's pretty much fruitless online. I mean, I I, I, I don't think anybody listening can really uh, talk about a whole bunch of people whose minds they've changed on a particular issue through you know Twitter rants or something like that.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, the the reality is that like not all dissent is helpful. It's, it's, it's not helpful. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I had an unfortunate exchange uh, um, maybe six or seven months ago with uh, a guy I used to go to church with in Phoenix who, because I think I pushed back on a few of his ideas and how he presented them, he said something along the lines of, like, you don't ever listen to anybody who disagrees with you. And I wanted to say, brother, just because I don't listen to you doesn't mean I don't listen to anybody. That's right. That's right. That's right. Like, you have to realize that this world and my bubbles are bigger than what you and I have. And one of the harms with social media is that because it allows everyone to say something, it leads people to believe that everyone has something to say. That's right. <laughs> um, and, the, and the reality is that's just that's just not true. I live in a world. I mean, I I guess we all should be concerned about bubbles and what they keep us from. And I by no means am I suggesting that. Um, I'm not. But I live in a world very much so where I have to talk very regularly with people who see the world very differently than I do. So like that's not as big of a concern for me. Um mm-hmm. even though people think that it's a concern for the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. They think we only listen to people who think just like us. So it's like, no, we we see your tweets too.
2: <laughs> well, we've thrown <laughs> around it. this turn um evangelical a couple of times and a lot of biblically or theologically conservative Christians are very sort of um, ambivalent toward the term because typically when it comes out in mainstream media, it's to talk about how evangelicals are supporting one candidate or another, and typically a Republican candidate. But with uh, Donald Trump as the candidate, many evangelicals are like, well, that that term doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, I mean, can you speak a little to that, how uh, mainstream media, whether it's your organization or or others are using the term evangelical, and and how useful is it if it's too broad, or is it too broad?
0: Yeah, I mean, it has always been too broad and too narrow, right? (laughs) Um, I think there are people who study religion and society who would argue that, theologically speaking, most Black and Latino Christians would fall more in the evangelical camp. Um, But we don't see that reflected in the data, Um, We don't see that being a term that people uh, use for those groups, um, for for many reasons, some of them historical. Um, As as far as polling goes and political reporting, um, it's not that the term evangelical isn't a theological group, but it certainly is overwhelmingly a political one. So, yeah, I can understand how that is difficult for people who view their circles and their faith communities as uh, different from The dominant uh, use of the word evangelical in the mainstream media. But one thing I have had to deal with in my own life, personally, as of both of you, that I would tell those people, do not uh, shy away from entertaining the possibility that your experience is an outlier. Um, And so all of the just, all of the, well, nobody in my circle or in my small group is voting for Trump. Like that doesn't dismiss the data. Yes. That doesn't dismiss the data. I mean, um, I remember very early, I think like last July when Trump first started leading with evangelicals, I saw so many tweets from evangelicals. Who were like, I don't believe these polls. I don't know anybody voting. I'm like, yes, you do. You just don't know you do. <laughs> right. um, and where we are now, you know, I mean, I think most people, most evangelicals, white evangelicals would admit that they know people who are voting or are voting for him themselves. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I want to push back on, though, regarding evangelical support for uh, Trump, there was some, some good data, some polling that came out last week from Pew. I, th- I think there are a few white evangelicals who convinced themselves that Trump is winning the that demographic because of his uh, anti-abortion views. Um, but the polling supports that many... White evangelicals agree with Trump on issues related to trade and immigration and mm-hmm. law enforcement as well. So it's not just about um, abortion. And it's I mean, what you could debate whether or not like if it even is primarily about abortion, considering the the relative attention, relatively low attention that he's given to that issue um, in his campaign compared to other issues. I I, I say all that to say is I I think this the this data supports that white evangelicals are supporting Trump and it's not just because of his views on abortion.
2: Mm. 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 Wow. And, and and it does seem like, yeah. you know, now that he is the the he's the only guy, right? And and so people are lining up behind him. Even more, and some sheepish, sheepishly, right? I read uh, this morning that there were a lot of very prominent Republicans who aren't even going to the convention. um, Don't want to risk aligning themselves too closely to it. But you know, now that he's you know the likely candidate, it it looks like people are just saying, "Well, guess he's our guy." and so is it, it like you're saying, the relative lack of conversation about abortion in, compare to, in comparison to other issues, is it in your reporting and, and your research just that the opposition to the Democratic Party platform or Hillary Clinton in particular is that strong? You know, they're voting against Clinton more than for Trump or what?
0: No, that I mean, that definitely is true. That same Pew poll said that the majority – of white evangelicals who are backing Trump are doing so because they oppose Clinton. Um, I think the numbers like 45% of them were that was the reason. 45% were anti-Clinton, opposed to like 30% being pro-Trump. Got it. Um, so that there is some merit to that. Um, two two caveats that 30% is not a small number, that thirty percent pro-Trump <laughs> within evangelicalism is not a small number. Uh-huh. Um And I think there's also a deeper conversation to be had about like self awareness. Hmm. Um, So just because you say you're backing him because you don't like Clinton, that doesn't mean that's why you're actually backing him. (laughs) You could be backing him because you really would like to see a Muslim ban and a wall being built. Hmm. Um, And because you think all lives matter is an appropriate response to black lives matter. Just, just because you don't say that, that doesn't mean it's true. I mean, I think, One thing I'm very fascinated by in writing about society is just how unaware we are of our own hearts and our Mm -hmm. motivations. It was interesting. I was talking to a Wheaton College professor this morning about it. And he he said, which I thought was um, interesting, he said, whoever wins will have a hard time getting reelected. And, you know, our norm at this point, I mean, it's pretty normative that people serve for eight terms. I mean, there's some I think Bush senior was an example, as was Carter. But, yeah, whoever wins, people are going to be upset and they are going to try to get that person out, um, evangelical support or not.
1: Yeah. So, Eugene, what are your long term goals? What are some things that we see? We've seen you have a a really fascinating grasp of a lot of different topics. So what, what does the future look like for you? Do you see yourself being a journalist? for the considerable future. Are you going to, when's your book coming out?
2: You know, <laughs> <laughs> when you going to be a preacher. That, you
1: know, when's the TV show coming out? Oh, man. I'm, just, I'm just curious. What's, what's the long term? Because I think your voice is so necessary. So necessary. Um, as in an in intersection of a lot of different disciplines.
0: Man, I, uh, I so very much appreciate that. It's, it's all funny to me because I've been a journalist way longer than I thought I would be. I actually went to grad school to study public policy, to transition into, like a think tank or a foundation, and to get out of uh, the mainstream media. But um, I, uh, to your point, I'm moving a lot of different worlds uh, deeply, and um, and and thankfully have some insight on how they view the world. Um, and and I think what I would like to do is just bring more of those issues to the table and highlight many of those issues. I think if anything, one of the things that's so disappointing about how much more we are talking about uh, faith and race and class and gender is I'm not quite sure we're, we're talking about them that deeply yet. I mean, we talk so much about black and white relations. Um, we, we leave out the fact that Asian Americans are the fastest growing demographic wow. um, in this country. My time in Arizona really highlighted uh, issues related to the Hispanic community. We talk about, as you uh, hinted at earlier, we talk about evangelicals and that leaves out huge chunks of people within Christianity, not to mention like faiths outside of Christianity. Um, and so I, I'm hoping that I can be in places where I increasingly talk about the the magnitude of diversity that exists in this country, even within subgroups. I mean, I remember being in Arizona telling some friends, I was like, I don't think most white people know how diverse whiteness even is. Uh, I mean, wow. like i like I've lived in Boston and that's a different white from Jackson, like in many ways, there's some overlapping, but I mean, new England experiences with race in many ways can be very different from deep South experiences and yep. not to mention socioeconomically and just other issues. And so I just hope we get to talk about that. I hope I get a platform to discuss those issues more. Uh, there's a point I wanted to make kind of related to that, that both of you all mentioned before that made me talk about diversity more. One of the reasons in Arizona, I was like, well, Eugene, you don't need to talk about race because you're not saying anything that, uh, Michael Eric Dyson isn't already saying uh-huh. or the Thabiti or, or Cornell. And, and then you realize your friends don't know Thabiti. You know? <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean? I'm like, they're not reading that. And so, uh, so we need more outlets. We need more uh, programs and organizations like your network who are talking about diversity within subgroups so right. that people realize that there's great nuance. And one of the reasons we need this is because the backlash is increasing. Mm. I mean, as we see more people talk about diversity, people who are more hostile to diversity or um, are, are have a death grip on traditionalism, mm. Mm. And they are, and they they don't like how America um, may be changing, and they don't want to hear about this. But I mean, it's it's not it's not gonna happen. Like that's not gonna change. And we must admit that I had a professor last week who um, was talking about marginalized groups, and he said, even if you kill all of us, we'll still be here. And so I think that I think for the people who are like. I'm so tired of the race conversation. I'm like, the best thing you can do is just deal with it. Yeah. Cause these conversations aren't going anywhere.
2: Well, I mean, along those lines, I want to just, this election cycle is fascinating to me. Um, and I'm wondering from your perspective as a political reporter, uh, you know, to me, it feels very different than at least modern or recent elections. You know, since I was of voting age, you talked about you know these these racial conversations being um, sort of more and more polarizing. Uh, this this the responses being stronger. Is this election cycle different than than ones you've studied or covered? Are we seeing more of the same and we just we're just not you know historically savvy enough to realize we've been here before i mean compare this election cycle to previous ones
0: yeah i mean if nothing more this is the first post-obama election cycle huh. um right and so the race piece is happening there um mm-hmm. in ways there are conversations being had that um were not had before at a magnitude at a, at a depth uh, with a depth i mean this Um, It seems like with each election cycle, there is a new social media uh, avenue being made available that people are using to promote political ideas or positions like we like we follow these candidates like Twitter pages closely in their Snapchats because they make policy proposals on them. I Mm -hmm. mean, and can do so many times um, within a day. So, I mean, that is one of the big differences. I mean. We see this is the first time, you know, we have had a woman be the presumptive nominee of a party. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about gender in ways that we never have before. Um, you know, we have activism um, just at the forefront of, of almost every political conversation um, in ways that we didn't before with like Black Lives Matter um, and other organizations. And so it, it, things things are different. I mean, I, there's so much conversation about, you know, are we more divided? I don't really know how to measure that. What what I will say is that there are people who are who have been ignorant about division in America that are now aware of it.
2: Uh, good um, point.
0: And, and I, think, I think that's disappointing for them. Like I saw a, a, a poll last week or two weeks ago. It may have been another poll, but it says something like we are uh, like I think 70 percent of Americans think we are the most divided that we have ever been uh, <laughs> since the Rodney King riots. And I'm like, may I mean, maybe, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just, I I, I grew up black in the city with two parents who grew up in the South during the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Like the I- ideas of unity that some people hold, like I just was never really exposed to that. So, so I don't, I don't know, but what I do know, I really hold, hold fast to it that people are talking about race or reading about race now that weren't eight years ago.
2: Well, it, it, are, the, are the candidates themselves in the way they talk, do you think contributing to a, a, a climate that heightens those divisions or is that just, you know, we're just in this era and it almost doesn't matter who it was running, you're still going to have this really, really heightened tension?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, we've we I think people follow the leads of their political leaders. And I mean, you know, when Donald Trump dismisses uh, the concerns of Black Lives Matter um, on Fox News, that is acute um, to uh, his followers at when Hillary Clinton says things, whether you agree with it or not, like white Americans need to listen to black Americans, like white Americans who are more conservative re- regarding uh, the views of. Um, Related to race and law enforcement, they, they hear that. And so, I mean, we're seeing lawmakers, our, our leading candidates, engage these issues in a way they haven't in the past. And, I mean, in a way that even if he wanted to, I think many people will argue that Barack Obama didn't have the freedom to.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It'll be interesting just to see how this changes.
2: Absolutely. Do you have a prediction? Who's, who's, who's going to be our next president?
0: Um, I, you know, like, I, what I I, really don't know. One thing I will say, like, I, I really don't know. And I know their polls, their poll, polls overwhelmingly say Clinton has it. The gap between Clinton and Trump is not as strong as it has been in the past or, or as strong as some people think. Mm-hmm. Um, but as someone who's covered local elections a lot, um, what I what I find myself most mindful of um, is turnout. Yes, it's turn. on. I mean, people will tweet and hashtag and Facebook and shade and not vote.
2: Oh, man. <laughs> so true. And so.
0: So I'm like, you know, I saw a, I saw a great tweet, I think, after the 2012 election. It's like the Wednesday after the election is the day that many Americans realize that a Facebook post is not the same thing as a vote.
2: Oh, And so
0: like like it doesn't matter how many like never Hillary, never Trump uh, things you you tweet if you don't actually show up. And so I uh, I'm not as confident and I I could be wrong that um, many people on the left who oppose Trump will show up um, as people think, because uh, I mean, like historically, these are communities that don't have high voting turnout for various reasons. Um, some, some due to, you know, alleged systematic discrimination with voting rights violations and some just, you know, in terms of apathy and a lack of faith and confidence in the government to provide a solution to the issues they face. But I do think that people who think that Hillary Clinton is the worst thing since sliced bread are going to show up. Mm. They're going to show up. Um, and, uh, so it'll be interesting. I'm very fascinated by it. I think what I am most fascinated by, and I know I'm rambling here. I don't think I'm, I'm very interested in, in, to see if, if Donald Trump is elected, if he will like being president of the United States, oh, um, wow. there are, I am, I am not sure that he is, um, as aware of what the job entails as people who have lawmaking experience, Um, and so I think he may be in for some rude awakenings and it'll be interesting to see how he responds to that. He may love it. He may be like, this is completely different from what I thought it would be. And I love it. Or he may be like, this isn't, you know, this isn't the Trump organization at all.
2: Exactly. CEO and president are two different jobs.
0: Oh, two different (laughs) jobs. I mean, like, just like pastoring a church and being a preacher are like two different jobs. Mm, Right. But mm, it's very common for who are preachers to be like, I love this. I think I want to be a pastor. It's a different job.
2: Good analogy. Brother Scott, no, we don't sorry. want to take too much more of your time. This has been so enlightening, helpful, and our honor really to have you on the show. We follow your work closely, applaud what you're doing in you know a, a very complicated space, dealing with tons of different perspectives and a new cycle that just will not quit. I know you are a man on the go. So thank you so much for your time.
0: Yeah, I know. Thanks for having me. I hope I hope it was helpful. I know I was a bit all over the place at times, but I so appreciate being able to engage you all's questions. I don't get a lot of opportunities to unpack what you've allowed me to today.
2: Good deal. Well, look forward to some some more communication from us. We'll love to follow up with you and get you on the show after the election cycle, too.
0: That would be great. Excellent. Thank you, Eugene. Take care of yourself. We
2: hope you enjoyed this episode of Pass the Mic. I am your co-host, Jamar Tisby, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jamar Tisby and our other co-host, Tyler Burns, at Burns23. Make sure to follow the Reformed African American Network at RAN Network and follow us online, raanetwork.org, rannetwork.org. We have had Eugene Scott, correspondent from CNN, political correspondent. You can follow him at Eugene Scott on Twitter, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic.
0: You've been listening to Pass the Mike, a Podesterry production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit That's podastery.com. That's P O D A S T E R Y.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.